Good evening. I want to welcome everyone to this evening uh, with Dr. Yako Haman. Um, my name is John Hilly, and uh, here as the pastor of East Brentwood Presbyterian Church, and we're really excited about having Yako. We had him out the other day on a Sunday, and many of our congregation got a chance to hear him then, um, and um, wanted to open it up to the community. Um, when so much is going on out in the community right now, from the traffic woes to baseball schedules, that um, I'm glad that you all set this as a priority to be here um, this evening. Um, Yako is over at Vanderbilt Divinity School, and uh, he is Associate Professor of th um, Psychology, what, th what else, um, Religion and Culture over there. And um, um, we are calling tonight Faith and Phones, our deepening relationship with screens. We're going to be recording this tonight, and uh, a lot of people called us and said, because of schedules, we can't be here. It's going to be sort of an unedited audio. Give us a couple of days. We'll put it up on our SoundCloud on our website, which is um, ebpctn.org or East Brentwood Presbyterian Church, along with the handouts for tonight. So we'll have that so you can share that and listen again to um, uh, what is said this evening. And if you want to stay in touch with our events here from our music series to some other things that we have going. I have a sign-up sheet uh, over there if you want to leave your name and your, and your uh, email address. It's right next to some um, books that Yako has provided, uh, uh, not as complimentary tonight, um, but, <laughs> but he is getting it uh, uh, his own cost of what he would buy it from Amazon. It's a 40-something, I think we paid almost uh, about 40 plus to get it from Amazon, and it's... Um, um, 20, um, 25, um, uh, if you want to walk with one tonight, which is his cost. And if you have only $20, um, you can take it for 20 but on Sunday, um, you have to put another 20 into the offering <laughs> plate, okay? And uh, um, joining me and welcome, welcoming you to tonight is uh, Sherry Vossel, is the director of our preschool here. And... Um, um, she has helped plan this evening along with Melissa Zadell and, and a couple of others. Uh, with our fantastic preschool, um, we wanted to offer this to some of our families because we see that what we do is that of a holding environment for our young children as they kind of work on their social and cultural and didactical kind of development. And, and, and in the same way, um, while we wanted to bring uh, Yako for that reason to, 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 to work with sort of our preschool families, is also um, um, one of our strategic priorities at the church this year is how to use technology positively. And also to try to increase um, shared common experiences and meaningful connections. So we felt like this would be an appropriate talk. Um, 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 uh, Subject. It seems like daily there are, are, are subjects uh, and um, articles on faith and phones and how to navigate technology. Today, man, what a day was a technology day. Uh, Zuckerberg uh, came out and, and said, you know, look, um, we made a big mistake with uh, this consulting company that then used um, uh, Facebook as a platform to scrape 50 million users' private information. You all thought you were just putting your, your family photos up there from your wonderful beach trip, and little did you know that you, when you were liking something, how they were finding out everything about you. So we're all trying to navigate that. At the same time, Congress is overwhelmingly approved 
um, things, uh, the Deportment Act today, um, because of trying to address how we're going to be um, interacting with the internet. Uh, and that, uh, that internet companies have to take some responsibility and can't just say, well, when we put Backpage on, our, on the internet, then we really have no responsibility having to deal with this site which is being used to, for sex trafficking for, for, young, for young people and that people are visiting. So now that's not your issue tonight, which is to talk about security or privacy. But it is, we're all trying to navigate how to use um, our phones and, and our screens and how to do it in a way that we don't get uh, sucked into kind of the, the dark side and, and that we um, become more isolated in doing so. And so Yako, so glad you're here. Yako's just a hoot. He's going to be a great, we could bring him in at uh, any number of subjects to talk about. Um, uh, he, this guy gets up early, he starts writing, he's very engaging. You're going to hear tonight his very lekka South African accent. He is from Stellenbosch, South Africa. So he's got that Afrikaner-English combination, which is, we just would want to listen to you all night long. But he's going to go about 40 minutes, uh, and then we'll go into a, a question and uh, answer time and some discussion. Um, you know, he could talk to us about some of the groundbreaking work he's doing over at Vanderbilt and elsewhere around the nature, which, uh, nation, which is teaming up students um, to live in a housing situation and uh, with um, adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities and to work and live communally in a way that is meeting a deep, deep need in our country. And he's doing some um, groundbreaking work in that area. We could invite him back back um, uh, later this year because in May 26, he's going to take off on a 21-day motorcycle ride for the Four Corners motorcycle course that you have to visit the four corners of the United States within 21 days riding a motorcycle um, from Key West, uh, Florida to down in the tip of California to somewhere up in Washington. Blaine, Blaine, Washington. Blaine, Washington to what's the town in? Madawaska, Maine. Madawaska, Maine. And in 21 days, that's a lot of butt time in the saddle there. And so he would be, uh, I want to have you back. But it won't be until like next year because he's using his sabbatical to teach in Lusaka, uh, Zambia, and also to back in his home country of Stellenbosch, South Africa. So enough about me talking, um, but let's hear from Yako. And Yako, so glad that you're here this evening. Thanks, John. Uh, friends, thank you. It's great being with you again. I see some faces from the last time I visited not too long ago. It's wonderful to be here. You're a brave young man coming out to yeah. talk to this. I hope your mom gives you extra something this week in terms of an allowance. <laughs> Just a hint. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, I want to talk with you a little bit about technology. And, and I want to tell you about the book. Um, my mom is 89. She read it over a period of maybe like three months. It's a slow read. It's an academic book. Lots of case studies and data and stuff like that. But she read it over about three, uh, three, um, uh, three months, and she actually liked it. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm amazed because her generation engages technology way different from the way that I engage technology. And she actually liked it. But I, I wrote the book for a, a couple of reasons. And the one is I've got two teenage girls. Um, they're about to be 16 and 14. Uh, and um, I've, I've noticed that they, they are so... Uh, prone to live phone in hand. 
And, and uh, I, I think I'll convince you tonight that it, it's, it's, it's impossible to flourish in life if you live phone in hand. You, you just cannot flourish. Um, even though uh, sort of big tech companies will try to communicate to us that that's exactly what we need to do. You know, we need to have the latest phone. We have to engage it a lot and then you will be hip and all those kinds of things. But you really cannot flourish uh, for, for many, many reasons that I will try to explain. Just some of them I'll try to explain uh, to uh, tonight so that's the one reason really for my girls the the other one was more for me and maybe people older than me and that is uh, I've, I've, I've grown to believe that we live our whole life to figure out how to die well very few of us will just die in a moment most of us in this room will have prolonged illness we will see the decline of our bodily strengths we will go into fragile care at some point. Um, somebody else will tend to my most basic needs. And what kind of person do I have to be to actually die well? Um, and that came out of me being a hospital chaplain for about eight years. I've had the privilege of being in the presence of lots of people who died. And uh, not everybody can die well, I can tell you that. Uh, and how do, you, how do you live life in such a way that you can actually see that last hurdle that all of us will have to cross? Uh, how, do, how do we do, do that? So the title of my book is Growing Down, and it comes from a phrase that actually says, we have to grow down to go through the little hole called death. And that is a psychoanalyst who used that language. Uh, but that's much more personal for me uh, as, as, as just somebody very mindful, I mean, you, you hear from John, my, my hobby is long-distance motorcycling, so I, I am pretty mindful that uh, for the number of miles that I spend on a motorcycle, things can go wrong. I can be sideswiped by somebody, and, and just what kind of life do I have to live, you know, to, to see that last little hurdle as well. But I don't have to convince you, uh, I think, tonight to, to, to recognize that, you know, we all live in a culture where where we have to compete with screens all the, the time. And, and even though a picture like this was staged, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it's not far from reality either. Uh, all of us have seen it. We've been to the restaurants where people just uh, uh, totally are preoccupied with their, their uh, sort of uh, screens. And then if there's a young kid and the kid begins to act out, almost immediately out will become the... the the iPad or the iPhone, and now the child is tethered to a screen, but disappears in his or her own world. And I don't think we as parents sometimes wonder, but what is happening to my child who was fussy because the child probably needed some attention and probably said, you know, please pay attention to me too. Recognize me, please. And now we pull out an iPad, and yes, our child is no longer a bother, but is that the kind of recognition that our children are longing for? You know, to be tethered to a screen? Uh, it's just really, really uh, challenging in, in, in so many ways. And, and so honestly, today we live in a world that did not even exist 10 years ago. And that is, uh, part of the, 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 the scariness of a small handheld screen. So I'm thinking of smartphones, I'm thinking of tablets, I'm thinking of laptops, things like that. Um, 
Yeah, the, the average American, they now say, uh, checks in with his or her device around 150 times a day where your eyes will glance at a, at a, at a screen 150 times a day. Um, many of us, if you have uh, set your phone on vibration or some kind of a ping, you will hear the ping, you will feel the vibration, even though nothing has come in. Because we've been so conditioned that that message will, will, will come in. Uh, this last one here at the bottom, you know, two, every two days we create basically as much data broadly conceived as all of civilization. So we think about 5,000 years of stuff that humanity created. We do that every few days over and over again. Um, I remember well when I came to the U.S. in, um, I came in 1993, and there was an ad of television on television just shortly thereafter. Uh, I was in Princeton, New Jersey area, and it was kind of like a guy surfing the web, and he reached the end of the web. <laughs> and it was this ad that basically said, now what? What's going to happen? You surfed everything that's out there. And today, it is just totally impossible to even look at a small minutia of what's on, 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 on the web. Um, games, you know, I'm thinking. So this is just one game that has been played five, almost six million years of combined playtime. And, and I'm thinking, what, what can happen to humanity if we spend that many hours to try to solve world hunger, which we actually can do. Or if we try to say people need clean water and sanitation around the world, where the majority of people on this earth still doesn't have clean water. Can we spend our time in different kinds of ways? So we live in a new frontier, uh, 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 folks. The, the third one, about younger folks and how we think a millennial today would be basically between the age of 38 at the top end and about uh, 17, 18 at the bottom end. Uh, and this is a research out of the University of, of, of San Diego that, that showed 15 minutes seems to be the cutoff for most of that generation. That if they do not check in with their device, anxiety gets so high that it's almost counterproductive because our anxiety, remember, has that little curve that if our anxiety goes too high, it become, becomes counterproductive. If our anxiety increases, we can perform better, actually. But if it goes too high, it's against our performance. So for somebody who teaches university students, I have just now, I, I've totally bought into this, and I will try to build into my teaching. Every 15 minutes, I will just send them online. <laughs> I, I, I will say something such as, so every two days, uh, we generate a lot of content. Uh, you've got one minute to find me the source of what I've just said. To, to reduce their anxiety, to send them online. Or I will send them online and I will say, here's a website, go to the website. You've got one minute to figure out whether what actually is being portrayed uh, is that fake news, yes or no. Figure it out for me. You've got one minute to figure it out. So I, I have totally uh, uh, just bought into the, 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 the knowledge that we have gained in, in, so, in so many ways. Uh, you and I are destined to be 
cared for by, by robots. You'll see the big eyes, and I'll say something about the eyes soon. Uh, but we will have companion robots. It's already, um, it's already happening. And, and our brains do not distinguish well between whether it's a robot who cares for me or whether it's a human being who cares for me. And, and the reason behind it is really that you and I, um, uh, and I'm sort of running ahead of my, myself a little bit, but uh, you and I have these mirror neurons in our brain, uh, and the only uh, work of this mirror neuron is actually to look at other eyes and then to mirror what I see. So that's why a baby smiles if we smile into a baby's face, for instance. It's the mirror neurons that kick in. So you can already see if we are always looking down on our screens, the eye contact is missing and our mirror neurons now reflect screens, which is not the original purpose of a mirror neuron. Uh, mirror neurons love other faces. Um, but I'll say something more about that in, in a second. So these robots are, have big eyes because it fool, they fool our eyes. I look at plastic eyes, but my mirror neurons get triggered in exactly the same way as I look into your eyes at this very moment. So we have to admit, and I try to explore that in my book, that we really are extended cells. Uh, that's not my idea, by the way. Uh, many of you have been uh, in a psychology class in, in the past, and you've heard the name of William James, uh, arguably one of the biggest uh, psychologists that the US uh, gave us. Uh, he um, wrote most of his work in the very early 1900s. Uh, but he was the first person who basically said, we attach ourselves to things in a very significant way. And his example actually was, uh, I mean, he taught at Harvard, he was in the, the wealthy circles of life. So his examples were things like, if you have a sailboat and your sailboat sinks, you'll become depressed. Or if you have a big house and your house burns down, you will become depressed because we attach ourselves, the third example he had was about money, but the, the, um, the, the, the basic message was that we attach ourselves to things in such a significant way that I become part of the thing and the thing is part of me. And, and that's true for all of us. If we leave the house at any point, uh, going to work or another venue, and we recognize, oh, I forgot my phone, uh, even halfway, down the block, we'll probably turn around and you know, go home and to, to pick it. And if you do forget it at home and you are way outside, not being able to, um, to, to turn around, uh, you'll be anxious just about all day. Are, are you missing out on things? And of course, that, that has been named FOMA, the fear of missing out, which is basically um, most of us now live with some kind of a FOMA. Uh, in, in, inside, uh, inside of ourselves. So we just have to admit, you know, we are extended selves, which means that I cannot really say to you, give up your phone. <laughs> because then I would say, just give up a part of yourself. That would be pretty hard, wouldn't it? Uh, and it may even be kind of on the cruel side. It won't be caring at all. So we have to really be mindful how we do these things, these things well. So we have these mirror neurons, uh, I argue in my book, because... I think we were created by this God in number six. It's God who says, um, I constantly turn my face as God towards yours, and I want to look you in the eye. We live a facial existence. And that's really where these mirror neurons come from. We were created to look 
at faces. Uh, and I'll say something about the lack of eye contact in a minute, but we have, uh, we have to have a lot of faces around us at all time. That need never disappears. So a wonderful ministry for this church or any church can be to go to some of the retirement complexes in the area or fragile care homes and truly give face time to the residents who are there. Because trust me, they long for it. They want to be recognized. They want to be seen. But also the second one, it's not just that we live sort of this facial existence. Uh, we, uh, in, in the Christian tradition at least, we, we will say we live with focus. And our focus is love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's the focus that we, that we need to have. And, um, oh, by the way, there is handouts somewhere. John, are you handing out? Oh, sorry about that. They are right here. And then you, it's kind of just what you see on the screen and then you can take that home. But we, we live a, a pretty focused life as well, which means you have to recognize your neighbor before you can love your neighbor. Uh, and I will say a, a few things about, is technology helping us to love more today? Uh, is technology helping us discover our neighbor? Uh, it's really difficult if we believe that we live this facial existence, but we live under the command of God to love our neighbor, to love God, but then even more so to, to love your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul. Um, if you are anxious about your phone and the presence of your phone and checking in with your phone, can you really love God with all your mind? Is that even possible? If you're anxious about a phone or you're anxious about the next check-in and how many likes you got and did people follow up and respond to your texts already and things like that, it, it's really, really challenging to live into God's, uh, God's command. So a thread that permeates my book is basically this one. It is a dictum that's been around since the late 1960s. And it basically says that technology is neither good, nor is it bad, nor is it neutral. Which means that technology always impinges upon us, but we don't have to fear that it's going to ruin us. It's not all bad. At the same time, it's not gonna save us, which I think a lot of technologists would say, that we need technology to thrive in life, and if we don't go to Mars, we won't exist, and things like that. That's all technology is going to save us. Um, I don't think technology is going to save us. I don't think technology is going to kill us off and ruin us completely, because it's neither good nor bad, but it's not neutral either, which means that you and I will have to have some kind of a value system to discern whether uh, the use of technology is appropriate or not. Uh, so my mom lives right on the border of South Africa and Namibia. She lives in a dinky small town, two red lights. Very small farming community. And I FaceTime her probably five times a week, every morning between 7.10 and 7.20, just set time. And if I don't FaceTime her, I call her. So we communicate every day. And I would say, you know, that's probably too much for most people. But if I cannot see my mom, I haven't seen her in two years, 
I am so appreciative of the technology that I can actually check in with my mom. And we speak only for today because tomorrow we're going to speak again. And I don't even have to ask what happened yesterday because yesterday we spoke too. It's just for today. Where are you now? Where am I now? That's the one thing that technology doesn't do well for us. It's not in the moment. It's not about presence, things like that. But if my girl, I actually caught my wife doing that just last night because they, they went on a college scouting trip, left this morning, and she wanted to check uh, on one of my daughters. And the way that our house is built, our bedroom is way over here at the bottom level, and the daughters are on the upstairs level, way on the other side. And she called my daughter from the bedroom. And I said, Michelle, what the heck? What are you doing? She said, whoa, we don't call each other in our own homes? Now, that might be the inappropriate use of technology. But we have to have some kind of a value system to figure out how we use technology. And that really is central because what I argue then is that's a kind of an intelligence that you and I need to have. And in my book, I basically argue for new kinds of intelligences we have to gain. Technological intelligence is one of those. Uh, but we have to gain new kinds of intelligences. For us who've been in the business world the last 15 years, we all know about how emotional intelligence was said to be really important. And if you want to thrive in life, you need to have uh, some kind of an, an emotional intelligence. And I'm basically saying, I think we're past emotional intelligence. I don't even think that's important anymore. We need an intelligence such as relational intelligence. Can you relate to other people? Um, I speak with a lot of young folk, because that's kind of my, 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 my vocation, and I'm amazed how few of them can actually engage me. They do not know how to have a conversation with me. They certainly cannot just small talk and get the conversation going. They almost never ask me questions. It's very factual, to the point. And then of course there's the eye contact. Their eyes are all over the place and they cannot sustain the intimacy of, 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 of eye contact. So technological intelligence is really this ability that we have to instill in ourselves and in our kids especially to figure out when is it appropriate to use technology and when is it not? The one thing that research tells us now over and over again is that we as adults are really poor role models. Children now tell over and over again what a struggle it is for them to connect with their parents because mom and dad always has a screen. There's one, uh, actually it's been replicated multiple times now, but there's research that indicates if you are in conversation with somebody and some, suddenly your phone buzzes or something and you, you take out your phone, but you're still in conversation with this person, 92% of people feel rejected when you do that. 92%. And you may think it's just innocent. I'm just going to quickly scan and put it right back. But just that mere act has brought some distance between you and the other person. So if you have technological intelligence, you would say, okay, 
my phone just buzzed. I'm not going to look at it. I'm going to hold my anxiety. I'm not going to check in with it because I don't want distance between me and the very next person that I'm, that I'm, that I'm talking with. So I want to give you a couple of things that I think will flesh out sort of um, technological intelligence for you a little bit, okay? And the first big one is this ability to build intimacy. And the best places to build intimacy is around tables, really. It's table fellowship. We see that in the Christian tradition because there are many, many references of Jesus eating with people. And, and I, you know, I, this is probably one of my favorite texts, Matthew 11. So let me ask you this. How many times did Jesus have to eat with somebody to be called a glutton? How many times do you think? Once? How many times do you think he drank wine with people to be called a drunkard? Well, I don't know how many times, but I can guarantee you it's not two times. It would have been many times. What we see in the life of Jesus is that he sought out table fellowship often. We have to do exactly the same. So if you have a family at home, I would really encourage you to see dinner time or breakfast time, but dinner time probably more so than breakfast time even, as a time for all of us to just get together and look each other in the eye. How it works in my house is that because I've got teenage girls and they're all active with sport, uh, we typically eat somewhere between 6.30 and 7, and then they just came home from sport and they would say, I'm not hungry. They actually have to come and sit around our table as the other folk eat and we have our family conversation, and then they can eat whenever they wanna eat, which is probably between nine and 10 or something like that. But we still seek out that family time. This is really important. If our young folk cannot keep eye contact, how are they going to do intimacy? So right now the divorce rate hovers around 50%. One in two marriages will fail. If you marry a second time, your chance of divorce is at 66%. If you marry a third time, your chance for divorce is 70%. It's one of those things where we don't learn from our mistakes, okay? Gets more challenging as we go along. So I, and I don't wanna be a dooms prophet, but I can absolutely see that in the coming years, intimate life will become more of a challenge for many people because they cannot sustain the intimacy. My guess is there's a couple of us in this room. I've been married almost 30 years. There's a few of you in that ballpark too, if not beyond that. Married life is not easy. It's hard work. How do you sustain married life if you cannot do intimacy well? So that's the first thing that I wanna say you know, keep, keep the ability to, to be intimate. Um, one person that I refer to often in my book is Sherry Turkle. She teaches at MIT. She has uh, followed our relationship with technology much longer than 
than, than, than I have. And uh, like me, very concerned about what happens at the human level, really. What happens at the human level? And she says, yeah, you know, we live network lives, but we are sort of lonely in, uh, in our own sort of worlds. This is a pretty important one for me too. Technology has become the primary source that informs people's sense of self. So there was a time that our sense of self was informed through playing, friendships, things like that. Now it is almost exclusively what I see on the screen and what I communicate through the screen. So the main argument that I make in my book is literally this, that our technology today has replaced the very holding environment, the relationships that cared for us in the first three years of our lives. When our sense of self was totally determined by other people. I was unhappy. Somebody stepped forward and wiped my butt, gave me a new nappy. And suddenly I'm happy. My sense of self greatly determined by outside people as our mirror neurons kept firing away all, all the time. And what we have now is that we have uh, a technology who becomes the transformational agent. I will talk about boredom in a minute, but I'm bored, I'll just take out my phone and I'm no longer bored. My sense of self determined by an outside source. What makes this really, really challenging is that people lose the ability of proactive behavior. Seeking your own joy, for instance, versus allowing other people to make you happy. It's a big difference. And we want our kids, especially, we want our young folk to be proactive in life and not reactive all the time. I'll say something about that in a minute. So we know that children do transformation slightly different from adults. For children, the transformation often happens through, a, um, through an attachment they have, a relationship they have with an item that belongs to them. It'll be a soft toy, it'll be a blanket, um, sometimes it's called the transitional object, uh, but it's that special uh, bear or pillow that you will not go on vacation without it because if you go without taking that along, your child is going to be very anxious all the way through, okay? So that's for children. They, they belong. They, they have a sense of belonging. They own ownership, things like that. But for us as adults, we pursue transformation. Uh, the best example that I can give you is actually this primal narrative we have in scripture about Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve and the narrative in the Garden of Eden can be read at least in three different ways. 
And depending on how you read it, you end up in vastly different spaces, okay? So this is the one that we all know. So tradition have said for eons, uh, the problem with Adam and Eve was is that Adam basically just transgressed the law and she was guilty. And what you can take away from that narrative is you are a guilty self and you need salvation of some kind. That's one way to read the story. A second way to read the story is a very different narrative at all. And it's the narrative of Adam and Eve in the garden and they discover they were naked and shame set in and they had to go into hiding. And God, it's a beautiful text. The text says, God was sort of walking in the cool of the evening breeze. And he was searching for them because he's a FaceTime God. He wanted FaceTime and they were hiding. There was no faces. And if you read that narrative through the lens of shame, I'm naked, I'm exposed, I feel this big, I feel like a worm, Job said. Job said, I feel like a worm if the early bird can come and only eat me up. I will be better off. That's the words of Job in scripture. And so, so yeah, so if we read that same narrative through the lens of shame, golly, that is a tough narrative. But every single one of us knows shame intimately. We know it intimately. It's part of embodied existence. A third way to read the narrative is very different yet. And that is the trick, trickster, uh, Satan, the snake, comes to... to um, to Eve and says, do you want to be like God? Do you want to be transformed? Do you want to have knowledge? And she says, but of course I want that. I want to be transformed. And then suddenly you have a total different narrative because you and I will say, you know, we want to be transformed to be more like Jesus, for instance. And none of us will say, well, that's a bad thing. Eve pursued transformation the problem she ran into is she had a bad partner and the transformation that she was promised never delivered but the impetus behind her movement was one of transformation so we have to work hard to seek healthy transformation because that's what our technology gives us it transforms us all the time yesterday i had breakfast with a musician here in the city who told me that for Lent he gave up all news. He's not following any news for all of Lent. So I asked him, hey, how's it happening in your life? How's it playing out for you? And he said, I'm just way more relaxed. I'm not anxious about stuff. I don't, I don't want to go back all the time and say, well, what has happened now? What, what, what big news is breaking now because there'll be something else every day that is breaking so yeah open yourself to boredom and solitude this is probably one of the biggest concerns i have is that technology killed boredom and people don't know how to be bored anymore but boredom is really important for multiple reasons one of which is when we enter into a space of boredom God created us in such a way that our imaginations set in and bails us out. That's when kids begin to play, for instance. But also boredom allows us to grow into the capacity for solitude. 
Solitude is you are alone by yourself and you're just waiting, really. That's kind of what solitude is. You're just kind of waiting. The way that I read scripture is that you have to go into that waiting space to hear God's voice. For some people, God speaks through lightning bolts and it just hits them right off their feet. For most people, it's actually a big discernment. What should I study? Should I move? Should I change jobs? And now you kind of wait for the answer. Just kind of wait for the answer. You cannot practice solitude if you cannot allow yourself to be bored. So catch yourself, whether you are at a red light, stop street, and you see everybody quickly going on their screens for that millisecond, just don't do that. Observe what's around you. Maybe make eye contact with the newspaper seller on the street corner. Maybe even roll down the window and ask his name. Things like that. But boredom is really, really important. And our kids, um, we have to work hard as parents to help our children experience boredom. Because when they get bored, it's almost like we hear it as an affront of some sorts. We have to bail them out of their boredom. No, boredom is really a good thing. It's really a good thing. A fourth one is be compassionate. So research shows that the markers for empathy in college children, college kids, are dropping significantly. It's like 40 percentage points in the last 20 years. And the only reason that we think of why are our young people not as compassionate as we hope them to be is actually technology. If you live in a world that is so me-oriented, and you know, when was it, 2015? No, no, 20, yeah, it was 2014, had selfie as the word of the year. If, if you live in a culture that makes selfie is the word of the year, there's not a lot of empathy and concern for other people in, 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 in that kind of, kind of a world. The more you face your screen, the less compassion you have. What is actually so amazing is that before you can be compassionate outward, you probably need a little bit of self-compassion inward. And so what we find is that technology erodes self-compassion. Self-compassion, which is one of the biggest ways how we can regulate our emotion. Give an example out of my house. My daughter had to go into an exam the other day and she was anxious. And so my question to her was, how much anxiety do you allow yourself to have as you go into this exam? it's pretty normal to be anxious, isn't it? I mean, you're going to do a massive test. So how much anxiety are you allowing yourself to have? Self, that's self-compassion right there. We have to work hard to help people be compassionate. Corinthians, many other places in, in Scripture, reminds us that God is compassionate towards us. We have to be compassionate towards other people. I cannot help but as I think of Twitter and those kinds of things, uh, gosh, it's so cruel and it is so abusive. 
there's just not a lot of not a lot of compassion we see when we go on online this is really an important one too the technology that we use through our phones and the platforms behind it work with what's called a filter bubble or the echo chamber it's basically algorithms are shaped for every single one of us every time we go online Amazon learns something new about us Apple learns something new about us uh, Oracle learns something new about us uh, our bank everything everything is computed in numbers so that's why you've searched for shoes once and for the next two weeks all you see are shoe ads because your algorithm is specific to your device and to you so what happens is that we get more of what we already know we get more of what we like they don't send you information that you would not like because they want to keep you on the page so that they can sell ads because that's how they make their money so if we live in the echo chamber or the filter bubble it is nearly impossible to discover your neighbor through a screen and a part of it is also just the speed remember that little boy in Syria that got washed up on the beach that image that was alive for all of about three days and then it's just gone but nothing really happened worldwide to help the plight of Syrian people much compassion is drifting we don't discover our neighbor one of my favorite texts is this one in Luke where and Jesus goes into the house of Simon and there's that woman and Jesus asks him do you see this woman and Simon only saw her as probably like a prostitute or a woman of ill repute uh, Jesus looked at her and saw something totally someone totally different who do you see if you look at your neighbor this is a very important aspect around technology and that is just faithfulness 73 percent 73 73 percent of all the pornography in the world is created in the u.s 70 percent of all the pornography in the world created in the u.s why because it is heavily consumed we now know that if you are between the ages of 13 and 18 you will probably look at pornography at least once a month at least once a month it's almost impossible to have filters of any kind to block these things out because what pornographers do is they um, they tag pornographic photographs with names such as Rihanna or Beyonce and no filter that you're gonna put in is going to block out Rihanna or Beyonce or something like someone like that so what happens is that if you go into and, and Apple ran into that not uh, too long ago uh, as they populate images just random images pornographic images will, 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 will show up 
you can actually watch and grotesque pornography. You can actually access that without typing in any words of any kind today. And all you have to do is you go, whether it's Bing or Google, whatever search engine you use, Firefox is actually a better one in that regard. But by going into the images and just beginning to scroll, you will get to pornography. But now this is the bad thing. Our brains were made in such a way that our brains become bored pretty fast. And if you begin with vanilla pornography, your brain will get tired of that image pretty fast. Did you know that a third, one third of US military men under the age of 40 has erectile dysfunction? So we have this virile army, military industry, but a third of US military personnel under the age of 40 has erectile dysfunction. We think about it in complex ways. One is the stress of massive combat and multiple deployments, things like that. That leads to erectile dysfunction. But we also know that pornography is the biggest escape for many in the military. What happens in, um, in these instances of not remaining faithful is that uh, you absolutely lose the capacity for intimacy because you try to emulate what you see on the screens which get more grotesque as your brain tires out on the very common images that you see. So faithfulness is really, really important. This is the honest truth. I'm writing this book. I thought I would do a lot about internet relationships and stuff like that, which in the end I didn't even write about. But for about three, four days, I was doing an awful lot of searching online on how do you get into sort of like a virtual relationship? What does virtual sexuality really look like? What forms does it take? How do you break up virtually? Do people lament a virtual breakup as much as a real breakup? Those are the kind of stuff that I was researching. About three days later, Ashley Madison, this company out of Canada, the only purpose for Ashley Madison is to help married people enter into an affair. That's the sole purpose of this company. They are so um, effective in their business plan here in Brentwood is that Brentwood actually has an office, a physical office for Ashley Madison. So I'm sitting at home and here comes an email from a beautiful young lady. She sent me a picture of her, very professional though, uh, Ashley Madison. And she's asking me, can I introduce you to the services of our company? So this is literally what happened. I forgot to log out of my Google account. <laughs> and as I was searching, Google was just eating up all the things that I was searching for. They probably sold my email address to Ashley Madison for a penny, if not even less. You may know that they had a breach, Ashley Madison did about two years ago. Their membership has increased after the breach. Not even, it didn't dissuade people 
to go the way of Ashley Madison. To stay faithful today is really difficult for all people, especially our younger folk. This is an important one for me too. The Christian tradition is a tradition of wisdom. You cannot really Google how to be a Christian. It's just not possible. You have to have a wisdom that's instilled because you listen to a lot of narratives and you can engage those narratives in, in conversation. Technology is really good to give us knowledge. So I can Google just about anything I can't remember and I will have an answer in no time. But you cannot go through life with knowledge. You really need wisdom. So what's beautiful about this church and having a school here is instilling in kids narratives that can cultivate wisdom in, in, the, in their lives. It is really important for us to, to do that. What is so sad though is that we spend so much time online that gives us the imagination of other people that has always a, an additional agenda which is they wanna make money off of us. We are being played when we go online, always. That's part of sort of technological intelligence is to know that you're being played, but you know in what ways are you being played, things like that. So that is really an important one. And then my last comment, and then we can open it up for comments and questions, is to be a, 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 whole, a whole person. As I've said earlier, that just about 90% of people feel some sense of rejection, some disconnect sets in if you take out your phone in the presence of someone else. There's a disconnect happening. And so <clears throat> if you wanna flourish in life, you want to be a whole person. You want to be somebody who shows up and you're present. People recognize your presence because there's significant eye contact. You can actually proactively engage the conversation or the person that you are conversing with. And all of that makes you sort of a whole person. You cannot show up phone in hand and be a whole person. You cannot live close to your phone and constantly run to your phone and be a whole person. So I wanna end with where I began and that is that if you and I want to flourish in life, and I think our kids want to do that. You and I want to flourish in life. We cannot really do that if we live phone in hand so closely. It's just not possible. But then the bigger one for me is literally, how do we do intimate life well? Because that is probably the deepest need that all of us carry for intimacy. The sense of belonging, we want to be touched by somebody else. It's a huge need we bring. And then all of us know a little bit in the back of our uh, minds that, yeah, we are going to die one day. How is that going to play out? How do we die well? Technology is not helping us on any of those fronts. Unless you and I are way more mindful, very intentional, 
And so here's a couple of things that I just want to challenge you on. I want to say for the next few days, switch off all your notifications. You will see that the world is not going to implode, even if you are a parent. Because if it was that important, the school or somebody else should have called 911 and not you. Okay? So, so just, just try it for a while. And maybe like three days, and then you take your emotional pulse. Because that's really what I'm trying to say in my work and in my book, is that we have an emotional relationship with technology. Yes, it impacts our brains and it impacts our relationships, impacts our faith life, our spirit. But before all of that happens, we have an emotional relationship with technology. So see if you can minimize your screen time. You may want to download an app called Moment. A moment is going to show you how much screen time you actually spend each day. My wife did it for only about four days and then she literally altered her way of managing her phone by placing it on the opposite side of the kitchen, for instance, so that she doesn't constantly just grab at it. And she has to make an intentional move to see and check in with, with, her, with her device. Find a way to increase your mindfulness around technology. In three days' time, I'm convinced you will be in a different place. And you may never return to any of those old ways. So friends, thank you for listening to me. I am really intrigued by what you heard what triggered some kind of a question in you, or maybe just a comment. Uh, my sense is nothing that I have said surprised you. Nothing that I have said is even new to you. I may just have wrapped it in certain, a certain framework of sorts, but probably nothing I said really surprised you at all. So yeah, do you have? Yeah. No, no, you did surprise me. Oh, I did, Absolutely okay. Absolutely, <laughs> you scared me. I have a three-year-old, and he is not getting a phone. Ever. <laughs> okay. Hold, hold me to that. But um, so what I'm curious as, a, as parents, we strongly believe in role modeling what you're talking about. We, we do not have phones at the dinner table, and we've had that since our child was born. Um, I think as he gets a little older, we, we are becoming a little more lax in some of our daytime use of phones. But anyway... My question is this, so, so we as parents can role model and role model and role model, but at what point are all of the external friends going to have such an influence on my boy that my role modeling may not make a difference anymore? Is there anything statistical or that you can share in that light? You know, there is, but there's also something biblical that I can give you that probably is even more uh, compelling. So, so we think little Moses, okay? We think he was in his house for, so remember he was born, he was placed in a basket, he was floating on a river amongst reeds, he was picked up, taken to Pharaoh's castle, and um, basically given back to his family of origin, remember that story. So we think that he was in his family of origin back maybe six years at best. All the opulence, all the experiences of 
living with Pharaoh in wealth and pamper did not erode the six years that he had in his family of origin. So I would say, don't be so overly anxious about what others will do and how they manage technology. Just focus on what you guys do at home. And I think it's really important. Remember though, that his world is closely tied and will be closely tied to technology. So you cannot say, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to give it, you know, that's <laughs> a little bit of a powerful statement. But how to do that in appropriate ways, in time-limited ways, small dosage, always the message that we are more important than you and your technology, things like that. So for instance, my girls are not allowed to take their phones up to their rooms past 8 p.m. at night. So there's simple things you can do that just kind of sets the tone, you know. And yes, they kicked and screamed initially, and I think now they are very grateful because I showed Jamie, my 16-year-old the other night, um, I, I showed her, uh, because it's actually my phone, because I'm paying for it, so I can look at her phone. Um, I said, uh, let, me, let me guess that most of your friends texted somewhere between 1 and 2 a.m. this morning. And she said, no, they're going to be sleeping. And I said, well, let's, let, let's look. They had a group chat at 1 a.m. We know research now indicates that most kids around 14 to 16 will wake up at least once during the night to check in with their device. That's at a time where, so you may not know this, but this is how our brains work. We, we need glucose in our brains to make good decisions. We have a set amount of glucose in our brains that lasts us hopefully all day long. But every time a phone pings and buzzes and you check in with your device, you actually go through many decisions before you even pick it up. And so literally you can burn through your glucose by noontime, just by being active with, with your technology. The only way to get that glucose restored is good sleep. There is no other way. You cannot take five-hour energy <laughs> and think you're going to get your, your glucose back, okay? So what happens with our kids is that they burn through all of those, uh, all of the capacity to make good decisions, really, and then when their glucose have to be restored through deep sleeping at night, they wake up to check, which means it's never restored. And then you make poor choices because you cannot make good choices without that capacity of glucose in, in, in your brain. So we know that for most people who are heavy users with technology, they kind of peter out here by one, one to two o'clock in the afternoon. They should not make any good decisions at that point. They should just move on to something else. So yeah, too much for your, in terms of the answer, but no, no, there, you, there you go. So, so there you go. So I am a mom, yeah. but I'm also a middle school teacher. Oh, yeah. Well. And um, for those of you who I care for your children on, on the weekend, I'm not as sassy as I am with your children as I am with my middle schoolers. But I had a child today who had to take her phone away because she could not stop looking at it during class. Yeah. And she came up to me before lunch begging 
almost on her knees begging yeah. to have her phone back at lunch. And in her words, I will die without it. Yeah. And she wasn't joking. No. She was almost physically shaking yeah. because I would not give her phone back to her. Um, yeah. And so my question to help the, that age kid who is already addicted to their phone and they're not getting good behavior and good habits modeled yep. at home. Is there anything that we can do to help them either as teachers or as other adult yeah. mentors? You know, I think psychoeducation is really important. I mean, they need to know how their bodies function. They need to know uh, the negative impact of technology, for instance. But I think we have to tap into their vanity, really. They want to make a difference in this world. They think they can change this world for us. And I think many will. But you cannot do it if you are that attached to your phone and if you go into all kinds of anxiety spirals because the phone was, was taken away. So I would say, I, I just told my girls, you've got a lot of gifts and you want to make a difference in the world. And you have to weigh that versus, I have a phone. Choose which one you want to do. You cannot do both at the same time. And I think we just have to tap into people's vanity. I, I've learned that a long time ago, which is probably not, as a theologian, it's probably not the best thing to say. But unless you tap into people's vanity, they don't, they don't see it through. But it's really important, I think, for you in your context to have really class discussions about this. And for folks to at least say out loud, you know, yeah, I am kind of. Uh, addiction language is really difficult to use, and there's a lot of people who, uh, who will say we should not use ad addiction uh, language. Uh, the, um, the only addiction we currently have that is not substance-based is gambling. That's the only behavior where we use addiction language is with gambling. Everything else with addiction is actually a substance-based. So what makes it so difficult with technology is that it's so widely used. And if we begin to use addiction language, then what do we say to 80% of our kids? You know, it's just really challenging. Uh, and there's lots of debates in psychology at the moment in terms of not using it, do we use it, how do we use it? My guess is it is not going to be used, addiction language around technology for years to come. But we can really have, I think, good conversations with our kids. Um, I also think play can be really important because play activity is one of those um, naturally gifted uh, 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 sort of activities that actually releases opioids, so it calms us down. In a play activity, we can be sort of, we can communicate a lot of truth playfully without being shaming or blaming, things like that. But yeah, I'm not surprised um, what, what you tell me, and I hear that from a lot of folk in, in your vocation. I see that in my college students, they, they are not far removed. Um, and, and I am kind of concerned because they spend an awful lot of money to be someone in the world, but I don't know if they'll get to their goals if they don't find a way to, um, to get their mind off it which they really need to do. Elizabeth, and then we pass it to Sherry, and Sherry can close it out. The app that you mentioned that M tracks moment, yeah. moment yeah. does it break it down by how much time you spend on exactly. each app? Yeah. Perfect. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so for instance, Michelle, when she did Moment, one of the things that she did, she uninstalled Facebook on her phone because she was convicted, really, that she spends an awful lot of time on, on Facebook. And remember, research indicates that there's a direct relationship between the amount of time you spend on Facebook and depressive symptoms within yourself. And depressive symptoms. And the reason being is that you're exposed to the curated lives of other people because they want likes, okay? Um, and you and I do not live a curated life. Sometimes our lives just stink and it's <laughs> difficult and challenging. And so I compare my difficult, challenging life versus curated lives and suddenly I just pale in comparison and it just pushes you in a downward spiral. So there's a direct relationship between how many Facebook friends you have really and just happiness and joy in life too. So yeah, we want to be careful. Moment is a good app. Uh, there's others too, but I like Moment. Mm. When did you start writing your book? You published in yeah. 2017. When did you start writing it? Yeah, so I, I wrote that over a two-year period. So I started working on it basically 2014. Uh, I started my research, started the writing in 2015. Uh, but then I went a little bit on a, on a sidetrack. I, um, I thought I would do much more with virtuality, uh, which is the next frontier. And everything that I have said is just going to be on steroids because the experience, if you have you know, VR goggles on, is just going to be so much more intense. Um, so I worked on virtuality for about six months and then I recognized my question is, what does it mean to be a human being today? I'm not really interested in virtuality. That's not my interest. And so I actually stopped. So I wrote almost half a book in <laughs> towards in the direction of virtuality. And then I turned and wrote the book that I finally wrote. So, it, But it took me about two years. And the reason I ask is because um, there seems to be a, a little bit of a movement now. There's this wait to the eighth, you know, don't give your child a, a yeah. cell phone until their eighth grade. There's parable phones, not parable, um, there's Sabbath phones where yeah. you put it yeah. away. And, and, and there's lots of articles that are coming out. And so I'm hoping that you're optimistic that this is not just a, a you know, a current little thing that we're thinking about and will go on. Because I think that it's it's so sucked in such a huge uh, yeah. percentage of our population. Yeah, I, I'm not overly optimistic, to be honest. And, oh. and, 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 and part of- and, I was and, looking for something different. And, 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 part, and part of it is if we think of, for instance, the millennial generation, um, there's about 70 million of them, 60% of them will never set foot in a church. So the things that you have mentioned, they just won't find it important. They don't do Sabbath things like that. It's just not even language they use. So we have a whole generation out there that the values that I have, such as that we live a facial existence because we were created by the creator who seeks FaceTime. I mean, that whole narrative does not ring a bell with them. With them, I'll just have to talk about mirror neurons. That, that narrative might work for them. 
So I'm, I'm not overly optimistic, and, and I can uh, sort of say that because the, um, I think technology, uh, Nir Ayal is a guy who wrote about that beautifully in his book called Hooked, how technology is so good to exploit our vulnerabilities. And I'm not convinced we are gaining intellectual, uh, uh, technological intelligence fast enough not to get hooked. I think we are just hooked in different ways over and, and over and over again. And uh, we can see, for instance, in our young kids who they, they are now using Snapchat and they've moved away from Facebook. They are not on Facebook. They don't even do email anymore. Uh, but the new platforms keep coming up that, that hooks them. So, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably more concerned. And I'm typically a very optimistic person. But, but on this one, I have quite a bit, quite a bit of concern. And I think we have to work hard as parents especially to be good, good role models for our kids. Friends, thank you. Appreciate the time.